So let me say something. When it comes to contracts, read the fine print. You know, sometimes those offers come to you like you can have this incredible loan at 0% and it will last for 18 days. And then it will go up to 158 million percent. And you will owe your life, your house, your dog to this company. You know those offers that come in and you need to read the fine print. My mother-in-law, who is 80 years old, just got a puppy. And not just a puppy, a German shepherd puppy that is already still a puppy almost bigger than my mother-in-law. It was a gift, a birthday gift from one of my sister-in-laws. And she realized that this, this dog needs training. And she feels that she's just a little too old to give it the training that it needs. So she decided to hire a trainer. And the trainer sent the contract to her house. The trainer didn't realize that my mother-in-law for over 40 years was a, an accountant. And so my mother-in-law does something that a lot of people don't do. She reads the fine print. She reads every single word and thinks about the consequences and what this means. Well, there was a caveat in this contract that said this. After the dog is trained for the next 120 days after the last training, The dog trainer is allowed to come at any hour of day and night to check on the welfare of the dog and to make sure that you are following all the directives that she gave you. My mother-in-law looked at that, read that in the fine print, says, well, she's not coming to my house at two o'clock in the morning. And as she began to think about the ramifications about that, she decided not to sign the contract. And she called the the trainer and the trainer said, I have never had anyone disagree to that caveat. And she said, well, they didn't read it, did they? (laughs) They just thought I'm going to get my dog trained. Every contract is a covenant of sorts and it has advantages. If it didn't have advantages, we wouldn't We want to enter into it. There has to be a motivation. You have to get something out of it. You know, most of your contracts that you're in right now with a credit card company or with a, they mainly have to do with, you got money out of it. You you got to make purchases out of it. And they financed it. There has to be a reason for entering a covenant. When you entered the covenant with your loan company, it was so you could live in your house or drive your car or be able to buy now and make payments later. Again, if it weren't for these advantages, you would never sign on the dotted line and you would never commit yourself to monthly payments. But every contract also includes certain activities on both parts. There are expectations on both sides. Activity is required of both parties. You make the payments, and the company provides certain services that are advantageous. Next, a covenant contains authority, right? There are consequences 
to breaking or not fulfilling the covenant. You might call it covenant curses or consequences for breaking them. If you fail to meet the covenant requirements of a lease, you're evicted. Your car is confiscated. If you fail to make your house payment, fines and penalties and foreclosure. If you fail to make your credit card company, a credit card payment, you will get collection agencies. There's consequences. You know, it's so funny because we accept these consequences materially in this realm, but we fail to realize that there are also spiritual consequences to breaking covenant. Then finally, there's an assurance. There's assurances. There is a security in a covenant. Those under covenant are covered. It's an insurance policy. I know with one of my credit cards, if I buy something and it breaks, I'm covered. When I travel, I've got automatic travel insurance through this credit card. And one of them, I actually found out from Linda Rourke in the office, through one of my credit cards, I get insurance anytime I rent a car. It naturally provides for it. You're saying, which one does that? Can't remember. I think it's actually Brian's credit card, but I'm in Brian and with Brian in another contract. It's called marriage. And therefore, these advantages that are his are also mine. But the author of Hebrews in verses 19 through 39 declares the advantages, the activity, the absolute authority, and the assurance that we have in the new covenant. The new covenant has advantages, and they are superior over the old covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, the commoners or the people were excluded from the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies. They were excluded from service to God. In this covenant, there are no exclusions. Paul tells us that in the covenant with Christ, there is neither Greek, there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian nor free, male nor female. But Christ is all and in all. There are no exclusions. And in this new covenant, one of the advantages is that we all have boldness to enter the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not just that we have access, which in itself would be awesome, but have you ever gotten access into a place you really don't belong? And you're just kind of against the wall going, whoa, this is amazing. But you're not really entering in. Or, you know, you're just kind of like, you know, just eyes wide open, like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. We don't just have wallflower access. We have confident access. Because we're entering in, not by our own blood, not by our own good works, but we are entering in because the blood of Jesus Christ was powerful, strong enough, great enough to cleanse us from all our sins. We have absolute security and no fear. We are wanted here. And so we go in confidently. Hey, dad, it is that throne. You know, um, one of my daughters was just visiting me and I noticed that she had one of my headbands on. I don't know what it is. It's like I get really excited that I have something cool 
that my daughters like. And I'm like, oh, you like that headband? She goes, yeah, I love it. And I'm like, oh, good. She goes, can I have it? And I'm like, yeah, you can have it. And it happened like five different things. So I don't have any more cool things. They went back to New York. I got to get more cool things. So when she comes out, she thinks I'm cool again. But I was, you know, this girl, I will not refuse her anything. I am so blessed that she comes into my home. I am so blessed. She can, she can ask for anything in my house, and I won't refuse it. Even the car. It's like, go drive it. Hallelujah, she didn't ask for that, but because it would be awfully hard. She did ask for some other things, and Brian's like, I hope you don't mind, but I bought her this and this and that. I'm like, man, she comes here impoverished, and she leaves rich. She forgot her jeans, you know, so I bought her a pair. She took a couple from my closet. She's dressed. She went back full, but that's how it is. We enter into the holiest of all impoverished, but we go away full. We go away with everything we need. Oh, God, <laughs> that, that provision looks so good. Take it. Take it. Oh, God, that mercy looks amazing. Take it. It's yours. Oh, God, you know, that love. I, I'd really like some of that. Then take all you want. We go in impoverished, but we go in boldly. And we leave full with all that our arms can carry. As much as we want. And we go into this higher place with confidence by a better way. A better way. We don't try to get in there by sacrifices or by a high priest. Because that didn't work. We go in by a new and living way, according to verse 20. That was consecrated or made especially for us. You see, Jesus came to make this way, to give us access, to give us our own special pathway into the holiest of all, through the veil, through his own body, through his own flesh. He has made us this new and living way. And not only that, he is the high priest. He is our companion. The one who is over the entire house of God, over all creation, we know and we have a relationship with. It is this one who has come and lived our life, has gone through the whole human experience and then died for our sins, who is our high priest. He loves us. It is the one that loves us. That he would not refuse us anything, even his own life. This is our high priest. This is our companion. This is our way in. He knows us. He is known by us. He belongs to us. We belong to him. He sympathizes with us. And he has power and prestige with God. And he has offered for us the perfect and eternal sacrifice. So we have confidence because we are with our high priest. Our confidence is the one who has made access for us and who goes with us 
into the holy of holies. Now, the activity of the new covenant, we enter into the holiest of all. Again, 1920, this is our activity. We go in, we pray, we pray. Hebrews 4.16 says that we go boldly into and before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in the time of need. We go daily. We go hourly. Sometimes we go minute by minute, second by second. But we go there to obtain mercy and find all the grace we need to help in the time of need. We do not stand outside and ask others to go in for us. Would you, would you go in there for us, for me? I, I have this problem. Would you take it to God for me? I mean, that's okay, but... What you need to do is, will you go in with me as I take this problem to God? You yourself have an entrance into the throne room of God. You need to enter. That's part of the activity. You need to draw near to God. Verse 22, the law, prophets, rituals, sacrifice, feasts were not an end in themselves. That's not the end in fact, we're told in Romans 10, 4, that Jesus is the end or the purpose, the objective of the law for all who believe. He's where it culminates. He's the reason for all of it. It's where it finds its meaning. It's where it finds its purpose. But these believers were trying to make the law an end in itself. Like, oh, if I obey the rules, God will accept me. Oh, if I perform the rituals, God will accept me. Oh, if I give the right sacrifice, God will accept me. Oh, if I celebrate the right feasts in the right way at the right time, God will accept me. No, no. They all pointed to the way of acceptance with God, Jesus Christ. Prayer, the Bible, that's not an end in itself. They are to bring us near to God. They are to bring us to our heavenly father and give us relationship. It's the word of God that tells us what he's done. It's the word of God that tells us what he's like. It's the word of God that tells us what pleases God and what doesn't please God. It's the word of God that directs our paths, but it is through prayer that we are empowered to live the word to do what it says. The Holy Spirit comes in and it's that grace that we receive in that throne room that allows us to live it out. In the Gospels, I don't know if you remember this, but the Herodians come to Jesus and they come with this hypothetical situation. And they said, um, you know, Lord, there was this woman and she married a man and he died. And they didn't have any children, but she married his brother, according to the Levitical law. And he didn't, they didn't have any children. He died. Then she married the other brother. He died without children. Then she married the fourth brother. <laughs> Believe it or not, he died. And they didn't have any children. This was a big family. There was a fifth brother. He died not having any children. I remember my dad used to tell this and say, I checked the coffee. Anyway, she married the uh, fifth brother. He died, no children. 
something was going on in this family. Sixth brother, he died, no children. Seventh brother, he died, no children. And then they said, okay, now, here's a dilemma. If, if there is a resurrection from the dead, which brother does she belong to? And Jesus said, you do greatly err, old King James, or you're making a big mistake, Cheryl translation, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. It's got to be the combo. We need to know the scriptures, but prayer, prayer empowers the scriptures in our life. You see, they're meant to draw us into the throne room of grace, to give us this personal relationship. We draw near to God. And how do we draw near? We draw near with full assurance of faith. Assurance. Again, confidence. Security. Knowing that all our bases are covered. You were not like the high priest who just sacrificed and said, no, I didn't think a bad thought, did I, between the you know, the, the bronze altar and the Holy of Holies, because if I did, I'm dead. We've got all our bases covered. We've got everything we need. We've been purified from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with a pure water. Remember, the high priest had to bathe twice and put on these holy garments before he could enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year. On Yom Kippur. But he tells us we can go into this throne room. We can draw close to God with full assurance of faith. Because our hearts have been purified from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Everything we need has been covered. And we can get close to God. James 4.8 says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you go into that throne room. God draws near to you. He opens the doors wide. We can get close to God and have a relationship with him. He is our Abba, Father. We can cuddle up in his arms. Whenever I was afraid as a little girl, what I wanted more than anything else was to hold my dad's hand. His hand was so big and so strong. And I remember even as a little girl, when I didn't want to hold his hand, I couldn't wriggle out of it. And boy, did I try. I was hyperactive. You know, I had all these movements and boy, he'd get a grip. He was hyperactive too. So he knew, he knew me. In fact, he said one time, you're hyperactive, just like me. And then my aunt Virginia, she's talking to my mom and she's like, I was hyperactive. Chuck was hyperactive and Cheryl's hyperactive. Like, this is our team, you know, and then there's Kay's team. What about your team? You know, <laughs> your team relaxed. We're team hyper. But I couldn't wriggle out of his grip. And boy, did I try. But he had a grip on me. And his hand was so strong. I remember one time he picked me up by my little wriggly hand. And I'm like dangling, like, you know, to be kept from danger, to be, I think it was a car that was coming and I didn't see it and I'm trying to pull him. 
we have a heavenly father, an Abba father, and we can draw near to God because he loves us, because he wants us, and he wants to be our father. Then the author says in verse 23, we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. We don't let go. We don't let go of the word of God. And that's where our confidence is. Our confidence is if Jesus said it, it's true. My dad used to say, never give up what you've learned in the light for what you can't see in the darkness. Never give up what you know. Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, something kind of like my dad. He said the Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are certain things that we don't understand, but you don't let go of the things you know. You don't exchange the things you know for the things you don't know. That's just not wise, is it? You hold on, you get a grip, you hold fast. We keep holding on to the gospel no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the persecution, no matter what the threats, no matter what the hardship, no matter what the doubts, the questions, or the perplexities. We keep holding on to our confession of our hope that Jesus is the way, that Jesus has died for our sins and risen again. On this earth, we are not going to know everything. We're not going to be able to explain everything. But we know enough to know the truth and to get into the throne room. And we hold on to those things we know to be true. This reminds me of Eleazar. Eleazar was one of David's mighty men. In First Chronicles 11, verses 12 through 13, we learned that the Philistines were attacking Israel. And Eleazar stood in a field of barley and he refused to give way to the Philistines. He just stood there with his sword in his hand. And because he stood there holding fast to his sword, the Philistines were repelled. They had to leave, and they couldn't take that field away from Israel. One man standing in a field with his sword was able to repel the enemy. In 2 Samuel 23.10, talking about that same event, we're told that he was so weary and so tired when the battle was over that they had to pry the sword out of his hand, that his hand stuck fast to the sword. That's what it is to hold fast, that nobody can get the word of God out of your hand. They can't pry it away from you. You could say, I don't know about this, but I know this. I think I've told you this story before, but when I was in high school, there was a girl who was really into the new age movement. Even back then, she had a mantra and she'd bring in crystals to school. And she was in my best friend's Spanish class. And they were sitting there. And she, 
she was very, very brilliant, very intellectual. And she would say to my best friend all the time, what about this? What about people? And she had every atheistic argument in the world. Now, my friend was also brilliant, but she would turn to this girl and say, I don't know about this, but this I know. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus Christ would not perish but have everlasting life. And she decided that's all she was going to say. Every time, you know, this other girl came to her, she just kept saying this. Well, the other girl, she went home to do her transcendental meditation. She crossed her legs. She did this and she tried to empty her mind. But going through the caverns of her mind were the words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. She couldn't clear her mind. It kept coming. And every time she'd empty her mind, God so loved the world that she said, God, if you're real and if you actually love the world so much, that you really did send Jesus, then I want in. And she said right then she felt a cleansing flood flow over her. And she came to school the next day and said to my friend, you're right, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. She ended up going to Christian college. She ended up becoming, she's a Christian writer now, and she's an apologist for the faith. We don't know everything, and we can't answer every question, but we know this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We can hold fast to that. When we don't understand the circumstances, when we don't understand the persecution, the threats, the hardships, we, we don't know the future. We don't have all the answers. We never will have all the answers till we get to heaven, but we can hold fast to this confidence. God so loved. God gave Jesus. We can hold on to that. Then another activity is we consider one another to stir up to love and good works. Verse 24, part of our activity in this in this new covenant, is we think about other believers. We give attention to, we seek to understand, we consider how we can motivate, inspire, stir them up, provoke them. One of the great things about being on these committees for the retreats is on those retreat committees, the women there on the committees are praying about how they can bless and inspire the women of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and those who come to the retreat. They're looking and they're shopping for gifts that will bless, that will um, inspire. They're thinking about activities. They're asking for a theme that will bless and inspire. I love working with women whose lives are wrapped up in considering one another to stir up to love and good works. This is to be the activity of those in the church, to, to think about others. How can, I, how can I love others? How can I extend, how can I mot motivate others to love, 
How can I motivate others to get involved, to do, to do these good works? And we do this good works, not so that we can be accepted with God, but because we are accepted with God, because he is flowing through us and we just want to respond. So we think about these things. We spend time. We spend time and we get ideas. Oh my goodness. I can make them my grandmother's famous banana bread. That's, that's one way that I strip to love and good works. I, I make people food, mainly Brian. But we ask God. Good works flow from our covenant relationship rather than qualifying us for a covenant relationship. And then another activity, according to verse 25, is we assemble with other believers. You see, the Hebrew believers, they were, they were not assembling as much. They were starting to kind of draw back. It wasn't as convenient. It was getting uncomfortable because of the persecution and because of the association. A little bit later, he's going to say, remember the beginning of your faith? You weren't afraid to associate with others. You gladly associated with those who were persecuted. But now they were beginning to back off. If I hang out with that person, I I might get some of their persecution. So they weren't assembling together. Oh my goodness, if there's one thing Satan wants to do, he wants to keep you from assembling together, from being part of community. We're told in Ephesians that assembling together equips all of us for ministry. But it also keeps us from false doctrine. It secures us. It solidifies us. We are not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, we need to exhort one another. Are you going to church? You need to go to church. Come to church with me. Encourage. Sometimes these people aren't going to church because they just don't have anyone to go with or sit with. Encourage them. Come sit with me. Come, let's go together. And then afterwards, let's do brunch. That would be Sunday morning. Afterward, let's do lunch. That would be after second service and Brian went long. You can encourage others to go with you. Friday morning, I'll, do, I'll help you with your homework. Let's go. In the Psalms, it says, come, let us go to the house of the Lord together. We are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Church is not optional. It's essential. It is the earthly extension of the body of Christ. And you cannot consider someone else to love and good works unless you're seeing them unless you're encountering them, unless you know what they're going through. Church is where we come to minister to others and to be built up ourselves in the most holy faith. I've got a quote from you. It's going to sound familiar, but I'm going to put a twist on it. Don't ask what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. I see church hopping because people are going, which church is most advantageous to me? 
What church is going to, you know, have the best Sunday school program? Well, why don't you join the Sunday school program and make the church that God has brought you to the whopping best church ever? You see, you need to invest in your church. It's time to invest, to seek again, to consider one another, to love and good works. But in this day and age, it's all about what's best for me. What is of the most comfort? What am I getting out of this? We need to commit to community and make the community your family. You need to say to somebody on a Sunday morning, how can I pray for you? I've told you this before, but um, I remember coming back to church when I had moved back from England and I sat on the second row and I sat next to a woman named Beryl. Beryl. She said, it's like Merle, but with a B. She was so amazing. She always had a hat every Sunday. She's gorgeous. And her hat always matched her husband's tie. And I sat next to her and she wrote my name down. She didn't know me from anyone. And she said, how can I pray for you this week? And she wrote down these things. She said, I want three things, three ways I can pray for you this week. She was the friendliest, sweetest woman I, I, I had met in a long time. And I started going to second service just so I could sit next to her every Sunday. And I just, I wanted to sit next to her. And one Sunday, you know, she knew my name was Cheryl. And one day they announced that Cheryl would be sharing it, Joyful Life. She turned and she said, because my dad looked at me and she said, have you been holding out on me? And I said, maybe. And she said, is that your papa up there? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, well, Cheryl, I'm going to pray twice as hard for you. (laughs) One Sunday, she went home after service. And this woman was fully involved in this church. And she took a nap. And she went right into the presence of Jesus. It was a loss for the church. Such a gain for heaven. But don't you want to be the next Burl? Sounds like Merle with B. Don't you want to be that? I remember at her, at her funeral. My dad did her funeral. And when it came time, it was packed here. When it came time to share people whose lives Burl had touched The line went all the way out that back door. That's when we used to have an aisle here, and I'm praying the aisle's back. But there was an aisle all the way out that back door. And my dad said, I thought you were going to share something. I said, I was, but the line was too long. And he said, wasn't it? That was the longest line I've ever seen at a funeral. She came to this church every Sunday to consider how she could stir up love and good works, how she could pray, how she could minister. And she was here every single Sunday. It is extremely important to assemble regularly in light of the days and times we live in. Why? Because we get influenced by the world without realizing it. We take on their ways without realizing it. And church is where our per perspective is fixed. In Psalm 73, Asaph said, you know, I started thinking there's no advantage in living a godly life. 
until he said, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. The world, as um, a poet put it, is too much with us. Buying and spending. We lay our powers waste. We need church to get the right perspective. And church is also where we can use our spiritual gifts. We can use the gift of prophecy. We can use the gift of encouragement. We can use the gift of the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom. You won't know what gifts you have until you come to church and begin to exercise and use your spiritual gifts. Next, the authority of the new covenant, verses 26 through 31. Peter said in Acts 4.12 that there is no other salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What the writer is saying in verses 26.31 is that there is no other covenant that can save. This is the only covenant. And those outside the covenant who sin willfully after hearing the knowledge of the truth, there's no other sacrifice for sin. There's nothing else that will work. There's nothing else that will atone or forgive or cleanse from sin but the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no other expectation. Those in the new covenant have expectations of all the grace they need and a reward at the end of our lives and even in these lives that God answers prayer. But the only expectation of those outside the covenant of God, verse 27, is the surety of judgment for their sins, is fiery indignation that will devour the adversary. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus tells us that hell was not made for people, but it was made for Satan and his angels. But those who choose to rebel, who choose to be in Satan's army, who choose to be the rebels against God, they end up with the same fate as the devil and his minions. In verse 27, I'm sorry, we're told also that there's a worse punishment than even those received under Moses' covenant. In Deuteronomy 2730, Moses lined up blessings and cursings. Blessings if you obeyed the covenant of God, but there were also curses. And the curses included eviction from the land, exclusion from God's blessings, the extensive sufferings, and exile to other nations. Those who rejected the lesser covenant died without mercy by the testimony of two or three witnesses. But those who reject the new covenant are declaring, according to verse 29, that Jesus' blood is worthless and they trample it underfoot. C.S. Lewis said, it's not that easy to get into hell. It's not that easy to get into hell. There are three steps to getting into hell. One, you must trample Jesus' blood underfoot and walk over the cross. Two, You must call or consider Jesus' blood as common, that Jesus deserved to die that death. And three, you must continually resist the goadings and proddings and convictions of the Holy Spirit. 
continually. You see, you're here in this room because you couldn't resist the proddings of the Holy Spirit. He gotcha. One day you're like, I can't resist anymore. I sense the love of God. I sense the call of God. I'm going to give in. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is precious. I believe that the only reason it was shed was for the forgiveness of my sins, to reconcile me to God. I believe in the covenant that God has given through Jesus Christ. Those outside the covenant count Jesus' blood as worthless, count the blood of Jesus a common thing. They have, give no value to it at all. And they insult the spirit of grace or they outrage, they disdain. They're saying, I don't need you. And every time the spirit says, Jesus loves you, they say, don't speak to me. Don't talk to me. They resist, resist, resist until their hearts are so hard. They can't feel it. They can't hear it. They can't sense it. You know, we know that in our day and age, there is a huge problem with alcoholism and drug abuse. And alcoholism and drug abuse, I believe there is one reason that people try to numb themselves. And I believe they try to numb themselves from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I believe they do these things because they don't want to hear the Holy Spirit, and they don't want to feel the guilt or the conviction of their sins. They, they just don't want to feel anymore. There is this sense of numbing just so I don't have to feel the pain or anything in life. And when you talk to somebody on drugs, you can't get through. They're just so numb. They're just so, you know, out of it because they don't feel anything. It's to continually resist by any means the proddings of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, there are consequences to the rejection of the only covenant available. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, God will judge his people. Vengeance. God's vengeance is against sin. It's against sin. It's only against sin. But if I am free of sin, if I am cleansed from sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to receive the vengeance or wrath of God. It comes against sin. And whoever still has sin, it is because of sin, not because of their personality, not because of their lifestyle, not because of their gender or nationality. It has only to do with the presence of sin. Either Jesus paid and covered your sin or you will pay for those sins. I'm reading Jeremiah right now, my personal devotions. And because it's 52 chapters, I'm going to be here for a while. But Jeremiah was constantly 
warning the people against the impending judgment of God against their sin. And he said, it's about the sin. Get rid of the sin. You know, you're doing the sacrifices, but, but you have no heart in it. You've got sin. You're offering oblations to other gods. You've got idols in your home. You've got to get rid of sin. And rather than getting rid of sin, they sought to kill Jeremiah. They said, we don't believe you. And they were emboldened in their sin. And then they were angry with God when judgment fell. Even though they had been warned, they were so angry. And they were evicted, exiled, and taken into captivity, just as Jeremiah prophesied. God keeps his word. He does not threaten to threaten. He warns because of the consequences. Now, I have to say this. My mother was to be feared. She was also to be loved, but she was to be feared. Because my dad was so busy, my mom was a disciplinarian in the home. And I remember one time saying to my mom, you know, I'm going to run away. And she said, go ahead. And I'll chase you down screaming the whole way. And then I'll tackle you. And I'll hold you down. And I'll... And I'm like, don't worry, I'm not going to do it. It's not going to happen. I'll just stay here. But I remember, I mean, there was... I had a fear and love relationship with my mom. I did not want to cross that woman. I wanted to stay on the good side. Because the good side was good. And the bad side was horrid, terrible, traumatic. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about those who've said, God's not real. I'm not afraid of God. Think of the blasphemous things that people have said about God. I was just reading about a blasphemous program that's going to be coming out on television really soon where God's a cigar-smoking, lustful, you know, guy who's very arbitrary. And this is going to be the personification of God on television. And I thought, wow, I don't want to be those actors. I don't want to be that producer. I don't want to be that director. Because one day, They're going to realize it's all real. And they're going to stand before the living God. I want to be on the good side. The good side, which includes his righteousness, his love, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, and his blessing. But God will take vengeance against sin. Sin is his enemy. I don't want any sin on me. I don't want any cause. Sin is the threat to all of God's good creation. Sin is the thief of God's creation. Sin is the liar. Sin is the captor. Sin is the torture. Sin is the disease. Sin is the cancer. Sin is the oppressor. That's why God hates sin and wants to remove it from our lives and has given the remedy, the the purification from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Finally, the assurance of the new covenant, verses 32 through 39. The author says, we are persuaded 
of better things concerning you. In 2 Peter 2.10, Peter says, make your calling and election sure. So the author points to the authenticity of their commitment or the assurance that they are in the new covenant. And he points to the time when they were illuminated. They received the gospel. They were illuminated. The lights went on. Then they endured a great struggle with persecutions. They were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations. They were companions or they associated with those who were ill-treated because of the gospel. And then they had compassion on the author when he was in prison. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. And they had an expectation for an enduring possession in heaven. These were the signs that they were fully in and under the new covenant. The author is saying, you have invested in this. You have come too far to turn back now. The investment in the gospel was all that had been spent and all that had been lost and all that had been endured. And all of this was leading them to a great reward. The trials and the afflictions were not a sign that they were in the wrong place, but it was part of their investment in the right place, in the new covenant. There was the assurance that they were in the right covenant, but then there was the assurance that all that they had gone through would be rewarded. Verse 36, they just needed to endure a bit longer to continue to do the will of God, the new covenant. And they would receive the promise. Luke 18, verses seven through eight, Jesus said, and God, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You see, we want these in and out. We want to go into the throne room of God and get the answer to our prayer immediately. And we, we don't want to process. We don't want to, you know, wait for it. But it's about waiting and persevering and enduring till we receive the reward. The Lord will do it. We have to keep praying, keep enduring, keep holding on until the answer comes. We keep praying without ceasing. You, you, you just keep going. You don't go, well, I guess God's not going to answer that prayer. So I'll go on to prayer number two. No, you keep holding on. You keep praying. You keep enduring. You're invested. You've put too much in to turn back now. This is not the time you're invested. There's a reward. You don't want to turn back right before the reward. We have this Christmas banquet every year where we have these, um, we have these uh, really good prizes for the staff. And, you know, we have this raffle where, you know, they'll call out a number and somebody will win. And my son-in-law had to leave early because, you know, they were already calling the prizes. He hadn't won. But had he stayed just a little bit longer, he would have had an iPad. You have to endure 
through the whole staff party. Even through Felice Navidad. You have to endure. Those who are there know what I mean. You have to endure to the end. We're too invested to turn back now. And that's what he's saying. You're too invested. And you have the insurance that what you've invested, you will be rewarded. You have assurance, verses 37 through 38, of Jesus' return for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Jesus is coming and he will come at the perfect time. And until then, those who would be righteous live by faith. Those who would be righteous, we believe in every word that God says. We believe in the blood of Jesus. We believe in everything the new covenant has brought to us. We have faith in what Jesus has done. Faith in what Jesus has promised. There is no reward for the one who is not in new covenant. They don't have any reward. They don't have any expectation, but that fiery judgment against sin because they're holding on to it and they won't let it go. Finally, we have the assurance of salvation, verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or judgment, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Our identity is under the new covenant. We do not and we will not draw back because there is no other covenant. There is no other name by which men can be saved. There is one covenant and that is the everlasting covenant that is brought to us and given to us by Jesus Christ. And we are in that new covenant. We are under the greatest contractual agreement that has ever been made, ever. It has the best advantages through the Messiah. It has the best activities, divine, empowered, awesome activities. It has the greatest authority, greater authority than any other contract. It has the authority to take us to heaven and it has the greatest assurance of hope for today and reward and salvation for tomorrow. We need to take advantage of all that is ours under the new covenant. No longer waver, no longer hold back, but enter boldly into the throne room of God Hold fast to God's word. Consider one another to stir up to love and good works. Attend and participate in the assembly of the church. Endure to the promise. Keep investing and anticipate the return of Jesus. Here is our activity. God has seen to the rest. We get all the good stuff because he took all the bad stuff on himself and out of the way. So we could live in the advantage, the activity, the authority, and the assurance of the new covenant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that Jesus has done. So this is where we stand. This is where we rest. This is where we hold our ground in the covenant that Jesus Christ has brokered for us 
through his blood, through his life, and with his Father. Lord, thank you for all that is ours today, right now, through Jesus Christ. May we live in and under and in the glory of this new covenant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.